Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624, or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you this hour as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Caller New York, New York starts us off. Hey, Chaz, welcome into the program. Hey, Noah, how's it going? Good. I've decided that you have earned a nickname, a permanent nickname, a moniker, as it will, uh, that, uh, that you'll be referred to here on after as part of the Ask Noah Show. Is it Steve? Not Steve. Uh, Steve is that other Brad guy. You're going to be caller New York, New York. Uh, all right, sounds good. What do we got going on tonight? So, uh, well, I've become a big, big fan of uh, the columns that Jason from uh, the Choose Linux podcast does over on Forbes. Yes. And his most recent one talks about uh, 1904 and how they are changing the way you get uh, NVIDIA drivers installed on Ubuntu used to be you had to maneuver over to the additional drivers uh, tab and say you don't want to use the, however you pronounce that French word, that uh, is the open source driver. I don't want to make fun of the French this week. Okay. Uh, but uh, as a result, now it just it's included in the third-party software that you can tick when the installation occurs. Right. My question for you is, why did it take so long to do that? And, I mean, what was the purpose that Canonical even separated them from the beginning? I can understand people who say they just want to use free software only, and I can understand people who are more pragmatic and say, you know what, I'll use closed-source drivers and things like that. But I have a hard time believing that there was ever a case where somebody said they wanted, you know, just for example, MP3 codecs on their machine, but they drew a line in the sand with the NVIDIA drivers. I would right. think if you would want one, you'd be okay with the other. So what's your thoughts on that? Uh, my thought is this. Anytime you have competition, it's good for business. And I think for a long time, NVIDIA got away with laying down in the sand, not really getting up and doing anything and not really being an active participant in the community. I think the change recently has been with Team uh, red and what AMD has brought to the table and what Ryzen has brought to the table and the competition that is offering that it's offering to Nvidia for a long time what you have to understand is Nvidia's biggest competitor was Nvidia Nvidia essentially tried to every year outproduce or outperform the last product that they made the last year and so what they are coming up against is when people like me, purchased an RX 580 and stick it into my machine and boot the thing up and have absolutely no problems out of the box when previously my $350 NVIDIA card came out of that box and I was using it with Kubuntu and my entire KDE Plasma desktop would just freeze up, lock up and crash and I would have to log out and log back in to get the desktop to come back because none of the icons would work and the clock would stop working and all of those kinds of things. 
when people like me go on the air and talk about stuff like that and talk about what a seamless transition it was to put an RX 580 and the open source drivers just worked right out of the box. I didn't have to do anything. It's being treated as a first class citizen and it's just a better experience. And so, hey, if you're a Linux user out there and you want high end graphic performance on Linux, then you should probably have an AMD graphics card. and You probably shouldn't have an NVIDIA one. When people like me say stuff like that, it forces NVIDIA to look back and go, huh, you know what we probably should do? You guys, we probably should get together with them canonical guys and probably get something together so that uh, when people install their Ubuntu systems, they can install our proprietary graf graphics driver out of the box. And so they get a little bit of better performance because the whole idea of making them go out and add a PPA and go into the additional drivers and enable it and all of that, that's not going to work. And they don't get as good a performance as they would get with a proprietary driver if they're using the Nuvu driver, whereas our friends over on the red side, their open source driver actually works better than the proprietary one, and so there's absolutely no reason whatsoever to install it. There's a lot of competition there, and there's a lot of motivation for NVIDIA to start working with the community. If they're not going to provide an open source graphics driver, at least they can give us a proprietary one that works a little better and is a little easier to get installed. That definitely makes sense. So would you say that's probably also the reason why they uh, have announced that this huge, uh, this project that they're taking on where they want to remake Quake 2 with all sorts of new lighting and high-quality graphics, why they've said it's going to be Linux uh, compatible from the get-go? Absolutely. I, I think, yeah, absolutely I do. I think this is contributing... I think anytime you get competition, what you see is the entire industry moves up. The the as as the as the tide goes up, all the ships rise at the same time. And I think that's what you're seeing. Nvidia has to now participate and become competitive in that open source space. And not that Nvidia was ever you know completely totally against Linux. There's of course the graphic of, you know, Linus flipping the bird. And and we all kind of have that moniker of well, they're not necessarily a friend to open source, but I think the reality is NVIDIA recognizes that there are a lot of people that are using Linux and a lot of professional graphic people that have professional uses for the Quadro series. And so there is a, there has been a market for a very long time to support this stuff out of the box on Linux. I think it's just kind of the, the cat is kind of coming home, right? And we've gotten to a point now where if you're not supporting Linux out of the box, even for desktop users and especially for gamers, then you're fundamentally at a loss. All right. Always great to hear from you, Noah. Yeah, appreciate the call. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. Dos Geek in the chat room says, Canonical and NVIDIA are close. Not close with AMD, unfortunately, as the Ryzen uh, is it, uh, 7 didn't work well until the 1904 releases. Uh, and, of course, uh, Ryan has joined us on the program to, to talk uh, before about some of the ways that graphics and are moving forward and as it relates to gaming and so on and so forth. Kerry joins us from California. Hey, Kerry, welcome into the program. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How can we help tonight? Uh, so I have a ubiquity, um, a couple of ubiquity access points set up at a house of worship. <clears throat> and when we first put it in, uh, it was working pretty well. But recently we've noticed, I think more and more people are getting on the Wi-Fi and it seems to be slowing down to a, almost a crawl. Sometimes we can't do anything during busy times. Um, and when we first put it in, we had put one access point over the main auditorium and then one access point kind of over the entry area of the building to kind of distribute it out through the whole building. But I'm thinking now it might make sense to possibly redistribute those access points so that the, the um, auditorium is split up 
uh, among those two access points instead of worrying about trying to cover the whole building, but just focus on the auditorium. Because what I'm seeing is I think that just one of the channels is just getting too clogged up um, with like, you know, 80 to to 100 different devices. And I think it would be better to just distribute the load. Um, But I'm also thinking about maybe buying newer access points. Uh, I just wanted to get your thoughts on it because I know you you use uh, Unify systems a lot. Yeah, almost exclusively. Let me ask you this. Are you using the UAP AC Pro? Is it a blue circle or a green circle? Uh, you know, I, I haven't, the access points are up in the ceiling and I haven't seen the, them in a little while. I think they're green circle, but it's actually an older model. I think it's just like a, a Unify AP, which is another reason why I'm thinking about getting newer ones, because I think it only does 2.4 gigahertz and not 5 gigahertz. Yep. Uh, that's why I asked if it was a green circle or a blue circle, carry because I can tell you without going any further into this conversation, exactly what your problem is. The green circle access points, they are the original Unify AP. Now, they were a great access point for their time, and they did a really fantastic job. They fundamentally changed the Wi-Fi world because this was the first time that you were able to purchase an access point, an access point, managed access point system, and it didn't cost you thousands and thousands of dollars. But there have been a lot of advances in Wi-Fi technology, and those green ones do not, not only do they not support uh, the five gigahertz band, they also don't support AC. And so a lot of newer devices have higher speed capabilities and, and more bandwidth, and you're not able to take advantage of that because the access point doesn't support it. And so what you want is the UAP AC Pro. Let me ask you this, Carrie. How many access points do you think you need to cover that church? Um, I, honestly, I think we can cover the whole building with two, but um, you know, three would be fine as well. I tell you what we're going to do, Carrie. Uh, it's my belief, my personal belief, that it, it, as part of God's kingdom, in order to move it forward, everybody kind of has to do their part. And so, you know, God has blessed me with a business and has allowed me to succeed in doing commercial IT support. So what I'm going to do, Carrie, is I'm putting back on hold, and I'll have Sarah pick up and get your particulars. We're going to get two U- UAP AC Pro shipped out to you, no charge, okay? Oh, that'd be awesome. I really appreciate that. Yeah, no problem, Carrie. I'll put you back on hold. Just hang on. Sarah will get to you. She'll pick up, and uh, we'll get two of those shipped out, and that's our thank you for what you're doing for that church. At 1-855-450-NOAH, that's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Nathan, Michigan, you're on Ask Noah. Good afternoon. Hi, Noah. How are you doing? Excellent. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing very well. So I have some questions for you concerning DMX lighting um, so my church has this uh, sweet light box from circa 2005, mm-hmm. and they wanted to start doing some more lighting stuff with that. And uh, by the way, it's got a, a really sweet 32-bit Windows XP machine that's running <laughs> it, and I'm going to intervene on that one. So um, what I, I'd like to do is, well, they've got some new lights, but when they hook the lights up to this sweet light box, which, by the way, finding documentation online for it is very scarce. It, uh, it just kind of, the lights just freak out. So... Now I, I I I'm guessing I don't really know, but uh, you know all the the addressing is all correct and everything else, but but I'm guessing the sweet light box might be too old that I can't address these newer lights. I mean it's about it is rather old, and I, I'm not sure if there's been some addendums or additions to the DMX protocol that maybe it has. I don't know. So what I'm looking for is hardware and software recommendations, not computer because I, I got that part taken care of, but the um, uh, as far as like a DMX controller box that's Linux friendly, that I'm guessing would probably need more than a hundred channels 
uh, like 256 channels. I know what, what's your recommendation there? I have done all of my DMX stuff on Linux for years. In fact, I never actually really got into the Windows thing. I was using a hardware controller, and uh, by the time I switched over to software, it was actually very well supported under Linux, and I've been using it ever since. Uh, there's two components to it. There is the software component, which is the software that actually runs the DMX software and does all of the macros and sends all of the commands, so on and so forth. The other portion of that is the physical hardware interface that lets the software talk to the uh, DMX devices. So let's start with the software. The software is a fork of the original QLC and it's called QLC Plus or QLite Controller Plus. Now I have a link for you in the show notes, but it is QLCplus.org. And essentially what QLC Plus is, is a very robust uh, lighting software that allows you to do very, very cool and complex things with DMX lighting. And so we've we've managed smoke and fog with it. We have managed uh, moving lights with it. We have created shows that is synced to music. I actually, uh, for a ep- for an episode of a previous podcast, actually designed a, uh, a lighting scene that went out in the front of my house. And I did that all with QLC Plus. So it's a very capable uh, piece of software available completely for free in your repository. I'm sorry, did you have something to jump in there? Yeah, I saw that. I saw, I'm last. I, I saw that one. That was very cool. So uh, QLC Plus is what I would recommend. I'd, I would check that out. Then the software component, which are, or the, excuse me, the hardware component, which you're going to need to get QLC Plus to talk to the, um, to the actual DMX devices, is a, a small little USB device known as the DMX King. And it's uh, available on Amazon for about 70 bucks. Again, I'll have a link for you in the, in the show notes. Eric, the IT guy, is in our chat room, and of course, Eric does lighting on an entirely different level. He's doing it for, you know, like uh, massive events. And so in his world, they spend ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars on uh, on lighting controllers, and it's all hardware-based. So know going into it what you're getting, right? This is not going to replace a ten or $15,000 hardware light DMX controller, but... I have yet to find a situation and I have yet to find a event that I'm not able to do everything the big guys are able to do with my $500 ThinkPad that I've dedicated to light control, QLC Plus, and the DMX King USB light controller that's available on Amazon Prime for 70 bucks, right? Okay. Does that make sense? That makes total sense. And so that, that actually, that, that puts, how, do you know how many channels that DMX King will, will, uh, We'll push. I believe by default. What's what's a what is a uh, what's a single universe? Is it 128 or 254? How, how much is what? Uh, how much is a how much is a DMX universe? I, 512. It will do 512 channels. Okay. Ah, uh, Eric. The, five, Eric, five, the IT guest says 1024. Him and I live in different universes, apparently. Apparently, yeah. All right. Well, thanks for the call, man. Hey, you know what? Give that a shot, and uh, and whether it works out or if it doesn't work out, make sure to give me a call back and let me know, okay? All right. I'll let you know it works out. Thank you very much. Yeah, I appreciate it. 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Make your voice heard. Become a part of the program. I had an issue with Magic Scripts this week, and so I figured it is my duty as a host of the Ask Noah Show to... uh, to spend a, a couple of moments and just kind of chat with you about what a magic script is and why I'm so against them. So it's a term that I coined back when I was working with Rikai, and it's anytime I get something to work, what you have to understand about me is the very first thing I do 
is blow it away and start all over again. So if I'm following a tutorial on how to set up, I don't know, LDAP, for example, as soon as I get LDAP working, the very first thing I do is factory reset all of the machines, reinstall the operating systems, I start over from scratch. Noah, that sounds crazy. Why would you do that? I'll tell you why I do that. I do that because if at the point that I have completed setting something up, I'm not able to go back and immediately recreate those steps. If I can't remember how it was I got that system to work 30 seconds after I got that system to work, there is absolutely no chance I'm going to be able to go back three years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, and be able to recreate the, 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 the steps. Right now, if it's something very, very simple, like setting up an IceCast server, it's essentially you download IceCast, you install it, you drop in a stock config file, and it runs. Things like that, maybe not so much so, but certainly when it gets to things like OS Ticket, which involves setting up a database and doing some custom work, C file, NextCloud even, uh, some of those more advanced software platforms that require a little bit of tweaking, uh, I tend to try to document as best I can how I got there. And that's to avoid having a system that works, but I can't explain how it works. I don't know how I got it to work and I couldn't make it work again if I had to. That to me is a magic script, something that works or does what it's supposed to do, but I can't tell you why. And I hate magic scripts. And so I came across that earlier this week where I had, we had a situation where I had a system that I was working on and for the life of me, even though it was us, even though it was Altspeed Technologies that set the system up, the technician who worked for us at the time documented what he did, roughly, but he didn't really give us step-by-step -step instructions of how he got to where he got. And so he just kind of did a couple of things, and then he ran into some problems, and then he troubleshot, and then he did a couple more things, and then troubleshot, and eventually he got there. And I was able to re-follow his steps, troubleshooting along the way, but it just took a very long time. And uh, so I thought I would just take a moment to do a PSA about magic scripts. If you solve something, if you fix something, particularly if you're making a guide or documenting for somebody else, don't rely on magic scripts. Don't have systems out there that you don't know exactly how they work, why they work, and why the, the way they work they do. If you have questions, break it and fix it. Figure out how you got those systems working because you will thank yourself later down the road. Now, me personally, as far as some ways to go about actually documenting that, these days I put everything inside of OS Ticket. Why do I put everything inside of OS Ticket? Well, I put everything inside of OS Ticket because it builds our company knowledge base. The vast majority of articles that are written inside of our company's knowledge base that are how-tos on how to set up a specific system or how to troubleshoot a given problem, those are developed from my experience in the field. And I sit there and document the steps on how I fix something. And then I put it into the company knowledge base. And occasionally, if it's something popular enough, like, oh, I don't know, setting up a YubiKey to authenticate SSH, we will put those articles out in, uh, make them into shows. And then we publish those knowledge base and they've been accessed hundreds of thousands of times for people to set these systems up on their own. I Before I had access to OS Ticket or before we had OS Ticket, um, before we had the knowledge base up. What I used to do is I used to use just a regular old text editor and I would have markdown files that essentially had step-by-step -step guides on how to set something up. These days you have so many options for composing markdown. You can do it in sublime text, which is what I typically do. You can use uh, Kodi MD, which that's C-O-D-I, which is a web-based markdown editor that we talked about last week. All of those things, all of those tools are available to you. 
And I promise you, you will come back and thank me if you don't rely on magic scripts and you take the time to document how you solved a problem. It'll also help you when you're in a conversation with another open source person and that open source person has a question and says, how did you make that work? And you can tell them it's exactly how I made it work. I can tell you because I have it documented. Again, one 855 noah that's 855-450-6624, the email, live at asknoahshow.com. That is how you make your voice heard, become a part of the program, and we'd be happy to have you take your questions, your comments, or ongoing discussion right here at asknoahshow.com. There was an interesting article that came out this week about Seuss. Now, we talked a little bit last week about Seuss, and we're actually going to have them on the program, and uh, I don't have any, I want to make clear, because the email suggested otherwise, I don't have anything against Seuss. I like a lot of the people that work there. I think they have a really great product. I think they serve a market. I have some concerns about some of the claims that are made, not necessarily by them, but about them. And I addressed those last week. This week, I found a very, very refreshing interview. It was an interview from the India Times by Yashvendra Singh interviewing Nils Brockman about Seuss. And the entire interview is fairly fascinating and in-depth, and we'll have that link for you at podcast.asknoahshow.com. You can check it out in the show notes. But the very last question is what caught my attention. The question was, by when will Seuss become a $1 billion company? How do you plan to bridge the gap between Seuss and the open source giant Red Hat? And here was his answer, and this was really brilliant. In my daily work, I'm not consumed with looking at Red Hat. For the last eight years, we have been focusing on our strength and our customers and have achieved consistent growth. Red Hat has always been there in the past, and Seuss has always found its areas that it was able to differentiate. I try to be a strong Seuss in the market rather than becoming another Red Hat. Within the next five years, we'll probably double our revenues that would bring us close to a billion-dollar company. In five years from now, We'll be at 3,000 employees. Today, we're getting 14 to 15% revenue from APAC, which will go up 20% in that time frame. Linux will still be important, but 80% of our revenue will come from it and the other 20% from emerging product categories. When you think of big commercial companies that create, maintain, or support Linux, there are three big companies that come to mind. Red Hat, Canonical, and Seuss. Red Hat is the go-to enterprise server operating system. If you need a server operating system and you're a large company, chances are you start with Red Hat at the top of your list and you try and knock it off. Now, sometimes you do because of environmental constraints. Sometimes you do because of what the preference of your system administrator or your support team. Sometimes you do because who you need to interact with or what you need to interact with, what part of the globe you're in. All of those reasons might be reasons you knock Red Hat off the list, but chances are Red Hat started on the top of that list. No one, there used to be this saying back in the 1990s, no one, everybody, no one ever got fired for buying IBM. And the idea was that IBM was such an industry standard that even if something went wrong, catastrophically wrong, and the whole company suffered because of an imperfection in an IBM product, it was still the correct choice to make because it was the safest bet. And so... Even if the entire thing went wrong, you wouldn't be faulted because you bought IBM and that was the right way to go. 
I believe that Red Hat is 2019's version of nobody ever got fired from buying Red Hat back from the 1990s. I spend a lot of time, a lot of time every week and every month in colleges and in businesses, and I'm negotiating deals to roll out Linux infrastructure. And the name Red Hat carries a lot of weight. When I walk into a place and I say, we're very familiar with Red Hat. We've worked with them for years. A lot of the people that work for us are certified in Red Hat. It carries a lot of weight. And people understand that Red Hat represents rock-solid industry standard Linux. On the desktop side, you've got Canonical, and they own the desktop market. It would be very difficult for a competitor to come in and try to challenge the market and the grip that Canonical has in the desktop market. You look at any review, you look at any large-scale deployment of desktop Linux, and chances are it's Canonical. There is a reason why every machine in this studio and my personal laptop is running some version of Ubuntu. I'm a Fedora guy. I have been for years. I still run Fedora on my home workstation, but the reason that we run Ubuntu and the reason that I do all of the how-to tutorials that I film on Ubuntu is because I understand that the vast majority of people that want to run Linux on the desktop are choosing to run it on Ubuntu. As an extension of the desktop market, you have the cloud market. Back in the 2000s, there were a lot of people that installed Ubuntu on their desktop and got very comfortable with the Ubuntu and Debian workflow and decided that when they were going to go deploy a server into the cloud, they were going to deploy that server on Ubuntu. And because of that familiarity, because of that comfortability, Ubuntu is the number one leader in the cloud. Now, is that to say that nobody deploys an enterprise server with Canonical on it? No, absolutely not. Does that mean that Fedora and Red Hat don't have a prolific presence on the desktop in certain environments? I'm not saying that at all. But each company has found their niche and they've embraced it. And what I found encouraging about the answer that Niels Bro that Niles, uh, Brockman gave and what I think he really understands and got right and what I think is ultimately going to lead to a lot of success for Seuss is they want to, they want to continue to iterate on the niche that they found. They're not chasing after somebody else's niche. They're working on their own. And that's a good thing. And that's a positive thing. And that moves the Linux community forward as a whole. Seuss probably is not going to beat Red Hat, monetarily speaking, anytime in, the, in my estimation in the near future. But you know what they do have a real shot at doing? They have a real shot at challenging Canonical, at least monetarily speaking. For all of the machines that Canonical has, and Canonical would tell you that they have more machines than any other Linux distro out there, and that's true. They have millions upon millions of machines, and so the metrics that we gather from that are astronomical. And, they, and, and that's why it has so much value. When, when Canonical comes back and says, hey, we're going to not roll out Wayland as the default, we're going to roll back to Xorg for now, and maybe we'll roll Wayland out in the future. That metric carries a lot of weight for a lot of people. And the reason that it carries a lot of weight for a lot of people is because even on a point release that's not LTS and only the geeks are installing, it's thousands and thousands and thousands of machines. And nobody else can even come close to that. And so the metric that they bring to the table is very valuable. But for all of those machines that are in production, the dollar per machine 
is abysmal compared to a company like Red Hat. And frankly, the dollar per machine is abysmal compared to a company like SUS. And so SUS has a real opportunity, I think, if they continue to embrace what has worked well for them in the past and not try to chase after somebody else's pony, they have a real chance at becoming a very successful competitor in the Linux market. And they are today a very successful competitor in the Linux market. Turth in the chat room asks about Pop! OS. I think that System76 has done more with Pop! OS than I initially gave them credit for. There are people that don't even own System76 computers and have decided to embrace Pop! OS, install Pop! OS, and use Pop! OS. And I think there's a lot of value there. But at the end of the day, even today, when I install Pop! OS, I don't see much more than an Ubuntu base with a GNOME shell and some aesthetic cu uh, customizations on the top. And in that world, I'm more interested in just participating in stock Ubuntu. I have my own reservations about GNOME. But to use the same software distribution that everybody else is going to be using when they get into Linux, I think there's a lot of value in trusting the company that makes Ubuntu to deliver the best available experience. And to that end, I would just use stock, uh, stock Ubuntu. Again, uh, 855-450-NOAH, that's 1-855-450-6624, the email, live at asknoahshow.com. You can join us by phone. You can join us in our interactive mumble room. Also, an invitation to join us in our free node chat room, Pound Ask Noah Show. Uh, we'll be pushing that a little bit more and might have some giveaways as we approach uh, Linux Fest Northwest and some of the other events that we're going to be at because we'd like to make that a community that exists 24-7, much like our interactive Telegram group does, which you can find at telegram.asknoahshow.com. We're a little bit late to the Linux Newswire newsroom with Eric, the IT guy. Here he is. From the Linux Newswire studio, this is the Weekly Roundup with Eric, the IT guy. Hey Noah, happy to be with you again, and here are your Linux and open source headlines. DigitalOcean kicks us off today with an acquisition of Nanobox, a platform to automate application development in true DevOps fashion. Nanobox says they are the simplest way to deploy and manage a flexible cloud infrastructure. They work with AWS, Google Cloud, and others. Now, DigitalOcean hopes to incorporate them into their expanded offerings to tie in with their latest releases of managed Kubernetes and database as a service. Details of the acquisition have not yet been released, but the VPS provider has asked its users and community for input on how the project should be integrated moving forward, keeping true to their open source values. Chef, one of the most popular infrastructure automation tools, has gone 100% open source. Chef has been competing for years in the infrastructure as code space alongside tools like Ansible, Puppet, and SaltStack. Now, their entire software suite is available to the public under the Apache 2.0 license. Their entire suite of tools will be available for all, for all to use and contribute to. To offset the income they were making off of their code, Chef now offers the Enterprise Automation Stack with a commercial support subscription. This is a software distribution specifically tailored towards enterprise content and software updates, automation expertise, and professional support. More details and community responses should be released during ChefConf in Seattle, Washington, May 20th through the 23rd. The past few weeks have seen tremendous backlash to the devastating blow to internet freedom in the EU from the Copyright and Digital Single Market Directive. However, the fight isn't over this week as Mozilla sets its sights on pro proposing regulations to protect privacy in the United States. 
The privacy-focused Mozilla Foundation released a 10-page blueprint outlining their goals, put people back in control of their data, established clear, effective, and enforceable rules for using that data, and a move towards a global alignment on governing data and the role of the Internet in our lives. The Foundation spoke in a recent blog post of how current standards have failed to protect individuals from being exploited by large companies who currently can connect and distribute data with nothing more than a notice and consent policy. Please help protect our data and privacy and set a precedent for the rest of the globe on the value of personal data by sharing the Mozilla U.S. Consumer Privacy Bill Blueprint 4.4.19. Despite all the negative press recently, Red Hat continues its support of Fedora and Linux on ARM. Since the explosion in the netbook market, ARM hardware has seen an almost 200% improvement in performance and stability every year. The Raspberry Pi has been doing very well in this space. Pinebook is bringing out a new pro laptop later this year. Now, recent tweets and blogs indicate that support is very close for the Snapdragon 850 chip. At a recent conference, a Lenovo Yoga C630 and Mix 630 were seen running Fedora. This is great news for native Linux competition and the netbook and tablet space for those more privacy-focused customers who shy away from the Google-produced Chromebooks. For LinuxNewsWire.com, I am Eric, the IT guy. Now, Noah, back to you. One of the things that we are going to uh, work on is getting more video content out there. One of the things that we're going to re be releasing later this week is a tutorial on how to get your YubiKey to function as an SSH certificate. And so the idea is simple. When we generate an SSH certificate, it is a more secure way to authenticate into an SSH server. I say it's more secure because somebody can't just see your password. They have to actually have the certificate that you have. Here's the rub. The problem comes in where you generate an SSH certificate and everybody stores their private key on their laptop. But what can happen is you can actually have that key stolen off of your laptop. And sometimes people do steal a key off of a laptop. Worse yet, you have no way of knowing that your key has been stolen off of your laptop. And so best practice for SSH keys are every time you get a new machine to generate a new set of SSH keys. Now I can count on one hand the amount of people that I know that actually follow best security practices for SSH keys. And the company Yubico is changing all of that. Yubico is a manufacturer of a hardware device that allows you to write an SSH key onto a physical device. Now, the device is a write-only device, which means that the private key can never be compromised, i.e., if you still have your YubiKey, then you know that nobody else has a copy of your SSH key. Now, good practice of the YubiKey is going to be to write the key onto the YubiKey and then destroy the key. You never obviously make a duplicate of it because if you were to write that same key to multiple YubiKeys or to keep a a, a file copy of the SSH key that you wrote to the YubiKey, obviously you defeat the entire security practice of the YubiKey and you may as well just store it as an SSH key, right? They're doing even more. These devices are so ridiculously powerful that one of the things that we see on Amazon when you look through the reviews is people don't even understand how to properly use the device. There's so many options that are available with these things that people don't even know how to set them up. The most basic functionality of a YubiKey is the one-time password, and essentially it works like this. You press a button on top of the YubiKey, 
and it talks to a YubiKey server and generates, well, the YubiKey doesn't talk to the server, it just generates a one-time password. The algorithm then is checked against the YubiKey server and says, okay, yep, that actually came from this YubiKey, it's valid, and then the YubiKey server says, hey, go ahead and authenticate. So that's the most basic form of authentication. But with the YubiKey, the latest YubiKey, the 5 series, they are developing the FIDO2 standard. Now, the FIDO2 standard is the evolution of the original uh, FIDO1 standard or the original U2F standard. And FIDO2 aims to be completely passwordless. Now, I've had an opportunity to play with this. We're actually in the process of trying to roll out FIDO2 into some of our AltaSpeed infrastructure. And it works kind of like this. Typically, two-factor authentication has been something you have and something you know. Very much similar, not unlike a debit card. The idea that you have a debit card and you have to know the PIN in order to be able to utilize the debit card functionality. And two-factor has been rolled out all, on all sorts of services, primarily as an app on your phone. And so you get a little number that pops up on your phone, you type that number in, and that proves that you have the phone and, uh, and you know the password. The problem, of course, is and that, and that anybody who has you tried to utilize two-factor authentication has inevitably run into. You sit down at a machine, you go to sign in, I don't have my phone next to me, I don't have the app installed, I don't have whatever it is, right? And then you're unable to authenticate with two-factor and, and it causes a huge problem. And so what that has done is actually deter people from implementing more secure solutions because they, they don't want to implement it because it actually causes a problem for them. And so what Yubico has done is said, you know what? A better way to go about doing this is to have a very simple pin code or password, you know, even something like one, two, three, four or five, six, seven, eight, something, something very basic. And you use that to secure a second factor authentication. And now instead of having to remember a password or use a password manager that has a complicated password and have this two factor authentication key. You secure your second two-factor authentication key with something very simple and easy to remember, and it effectively creates a passwordless login. So when you're prompted with a display, you're prompted with an authentication prompt. Instead of having to type in a password and then do a two-factor, it essentially just reads your, your YubiKey and says, okay, touch it to make sure you're there. Okay, yeah, you're there. All right, now go ahead and enter a, a short little pin or something like that to prove that you are who you say you are. Okay, yep, now you're in. And that actually removes complexity and makes it easier and more convenient. And those are some of the things that YubiKey, uh, Yubico, the company who makes YubiKeys, are working on. And so in addition to the tutorial that we have coming out later this week, I had a chance to catch up back at scale with one of their engineers and ask them a little bit about the YubiKey and what they're doing and the direction that they're going. Here is the audio from that interview. on the floor at scale in 2019, walking around and came across the Yubico booth. Now, if you've listened to the show for any amount of time, then you know we're huge fans of Yubico's hardware authentication key called the, the YubiKey. Now, I have both Venkat, a principal software engineer, and Kevin, a web engineer, with me from Yubico. Welcome, gentlemen, to the program. Hello. Hey, how's it going? Thanks hey. for having us. Yeah, thanks for taking the time to be here. So I guess uh, I'll just kind of go back and forth, and you guys are welcome to hand the question off to each other if you think one of you would be better suited to answer. But uh, with the advent of USB-C, obviously you guys have redesigned the original YubiKey to meet the demands of YubiKey-C. Uh, are those still as popular as the original Nanos, and do they conceal into the computer as well from the standpoint of being able to be left in all the time? So they, they are, they're popular. Um, they're not as concealed as like the nano, original nanos, 
they're like slightly slicking out a little bit, but like they are small enough that like you know it doesn't really bother. Mm -hmm. um, and I have, I have like a few of them on my laptop, mm -hmm. and I don't really like, notice them. So you, but they, they're designed to be left in 24/7, yeah. just like the original yeah. Nano. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Great. Awesome. Um, with a lot of new two-factor authentication tokens out there, we're seeing a lot of competition on the market. How is YubiKey doing? Uh, I think the competition is okay. I think we're doing a lot better. We're very innovative. Uh, I think we have a lot of good things coming in the pipeline, and I'm happy to say that I think Yubico will remain on top. What are some of the things that makes uh, Yubico stand out? We are innovative. Like, you know, we actually push the limits. Mm -hmm. uh, we were always, like, you know, working on what's the next best thing. Mm -hmm. And as you already seen in the uh, media, that we are working on a device which will actually work with iPhones, with the Lightning connector, which is some of, which is one of the things that like our customers want. So we are always pushing the boundaries. We are always like you know, we have the pulse in the market, and we are innovating. And we also work with other companies uh, so that we can actually bring the best and the like and the latest authentication mechanism for our users. Like if you look at the Fido 2, uh, we have worked with. Uh, like Fido Alliance and all their um, participants mm -hmm. to actually make something which is passwordless. Because even with the second factor, you still have a bad password. Um, and people don't remember hard password easily. Mm -hmm. So it's a big problem for the whole ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So with the Fido 2, we are pushing the boundary again to bring like no password experience. Mm -hmm. That's really exciting. There's a couple of things there I kind of want to dig into a little bit. Um, first of all, you said that you're designing a lightning adapter. That, that, that's interesting because in the past, Yubico was one of the only companies to offer two-factor authentication that could authenticate with near-field communication, or NFC on the back of the smartphone. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine that the USB-C devices are compatible with Android? Yes. Okay, so the so the idea then is since we have an since we have an NFC device that seems to work, mm -hmm. and we have a USB-C device that works on Android. Now we hit a point where we say, okay, we want a hardware device that can authenticate through a hardware connection with the Apple infrastructure. That's where Lightning comes in, and you guys are on top of that. Yes, yes. I mean, um, we don't know how the future is going to pan out. Mm -hmm. um, Apple seems like they're investing a lot in USB-C connectors. So, but we want to be ahead of the curve. So that's that's always a challenge. Talk to me about the new FIDO2 standard. How has it improved from the original uh, the original U2F standard? That's a pretty loaded question. Uh, um, the, this, in the simplest terms, like you know, it's it builds upon the you know, the original U2F flow uh, and adds a lot of uh, control mm -hmm. to the website creators mm -hmm. and uh, the users too. Mm -hmm. Like you know, um, uh, you, you can have a passwordless experience all the way to user pin and user verification, which is the touch, mm -hmm. uh, like experience, so that like, you know, it, it makes it bigger. Mm -hmm. So that's the, that's a one line answer I can give, but I can talk about it for, Hours. Sure, sure, absolutely. Give me the 30-second elevator pitch, if you would. What does a passwordless experience look like? How does that work? So the, the, the key actually has the secret key. Mm -hmm. 
and depending upon like how it's set up or how the how the relying party um, decides how it can be used um, it can it can actually work without a password like you know or actually with a pen or with just a touch and you have all these like different modalities uh, to go along with your um, with your ex it can be a first factor <clears throat> because now you have a password in your memory um, now you have it in a key um, and for example like if you are a shift worker and you want to just tap and go and like you know keep on doing work mm -hmm. that's possible mm -hmm. but if you want a little bit more secure have a pin associated with the yubikey mm -hmm. you tap type in the pin mm -hmm. and if the pin is typed in wrongly for more than like eight times mm -hmm. with a 502 the key kind of self-destructs so it doesn't allow like you know, malicious user mm -hmm. to gain access uh, and like that's that's it's gone like the, you cannot actually use a key anymore mm -hmm. after that so uh, all these actually gives option to the user and the relying parties and depending upon their security posture they mm -hmm. can actually design their login uh, workflow mm -hmm. as they need it so that's what FIDO2 brings to the table. How does the actual authentication me mechanism work? Is it just spitting out a very long password or is it some sort of API that's working behind the scenes? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> so, uh, when you actually enroll onto a website, right? Let's say um, Kevin.com, uh, <clears throat> the YubiKey generates a uh, key pair, a symmetry key pair, and it provides the public key to kevin.com mm -hmm. and it also like you know encrypts the private key with a very long um, uh, symmetric key which is like within the UB key mm -hmm. and then exports it alongside the public key mm -hmm. to the uh, relying party which is the kevin.com so now the website actually has the public key and a bit of encrypted blob. Um, if you are looking at like if you're looking at U2F or uh, FIDO2, they have different names. It's called a key handle in U2F, uh, credential ID in the uh, FIDO2 space. Mm -hmm. But like it is an encrypted public key. Uh, and when the relying party wants to authenticate a user, that credential ID will be sent to the browser. And the browser will talk to the alongside a challenge. And browser will proxy that information to the YubiKey. Since the Yub since the only one YubiKey can decrypt this credential ID, uh, and none other can, uh, it will unwrap the private key or the credential ID and solve the challenge and provide the response back to the browser, which gets proxied back to the relying party. Now that the relying party has a public key, it can easily verify that this, this challenge is solved because it actually has the challenge, response, and the public key. So that actually closes the authentication loop, and the relying party now believes, or actually trusts, that the, the user who provided the key is the user who they are um, claiming it to be. 
Now, you said that the FIDO2 standard calls for the key to be destroyed after a certain amount of times of incorrect pin usage. Maybe the standard doesn't call, but that is the way that well, actually, the, the, the oh, that is the standard. Yeah. When this occurs, is there a way to write a new key pair to the hardware device, or does that $50 device or $40 device that doesn't become trash? No, um, you can actually reset the key, and then like you know you can start reusing it again. So that's so when you say the key is destroyed, it doesn't mean that the the physical device is no longer functional. It means that the key pair stored yeah. within the device is no longer usable, and you have to yeah. generate a new set. I mean, when I say key, I'm talking about not the physical yeah. key. The secret key is destroyed within the physical device. You talked a little bit about the Lightning device that's coming out. Any new products other coming out from Ubico? Um, we are always working on it. Um, that's all I can talk about it. Okay. Uh, but um, watch our space, and you'll see more things happen along the way. It should be a really exciting year for Ubico this year, so stay tuned. One of the thing, one of the things that I've always really appreciated about Ubico specifically is the open source component, right? The ability to take that server code and run it on your own infrastructure. If somebody says, "I really like what Ubico is doing, I want to own it," though, that's possible, isn't it? Yes. Um, so, one of the things that we are exploring is how to make that more, like, easier for others to run their own infrastructure in the future. So keep uh, watching our space and more things, more good things to come in the near future. It has been articulated by me that one of the best uses of YubiKey is to be able to use it to authenticate into SSH service. And as a guy who runs as an IT consultant, I store SSH credentials on my YubiKey and I use it all the time. All of our employees at our company have one. Uh, the way that I have traditionally done that is using the CCID function built into the YubiKey, and I am using a PKCS11 provider to provide me the authentication. Now, there's another way to do that, and it's with OpenPGP. Which of those two methods are, are more recommended? Um, I personally like what you do, okay. uh, because that's how I, what I do. Uh, one thing that I have, I have an well, issue with OpenPGP, uh, well, actually, GPG agent, yeah is GPG agent will grab the CCID device mm -hmm. and it will never let go. Okay. So that is a, that's a little bit of an annoyance. Mm -hmm. um, personally, this is uh, not Ubico's um, mm -hmm. uh, opinion, but my personal opinion is like, I personally like that PKCS11 with OpenSC will not grab the, uh, the CCID device. Mm -hmm. So it will be available for other things too. Mm -hmm. Um, but we do talk, like we, we talk to a lot of people who use it for uh, SSH mm -hmm. in GPG, um, which totally works. Sure. So it's you are, it's what you want to do. Sure. Um, uh, I find the uh, PIV module that mm -hmm. one you use um, pretty straightforward. Um, since I use the same thing, mm -hmm. so I. I can keep on talking about it. Yeah. Oh. Uh, now that um, GitHub supports uh, SMIME signing, mm -hmm. it actually works. So back in the day, um, uh, when you want to sign your commits, mm -hmm. you want to use the OpenPGP mm -hmm. uh, signing. Mm -hmm. And GitHub only supported the PGP uh, part of, like you know, the PGP signatures. Mm -hmm. But now, like since last, Last year, Q3, I believe, mm -hmm. they support SMIME signing, mm -hmm. which works with uh, PKCS11. Mm -hmm. 
So now your YubiKey can actually sign S-MIME signature on GitHub. That's very exciting. Venkat, he is a principal software engineer, and we've got Kevin, our, the web engineer, both from Ubico, a very exciting company doing very exciting things. Guys, thanks so much for joining us on the Ask Noah program. We'll get you back on real soon. Thank you. Thank, thanks, thanks for, for having coming us. and talking to us, and thanks for uh, liking our product and pitching our product. I'm a bit of a fanboy. I hope to stay in contact with you. Likewise. Again, we'll have the video portion of that interview posted. You can find that by going to asknoahshow.com and clicking on the videos link. And uh, again, a tutorial coming out on how you can set your YubiKey up to act as a CCID provider so that you can authenticate into your SSH servers securely, effectively. And the thing I like about it, being a business owner, is anytime I terminate or anytime a employee leaves our, our business, I never have any reservations about asking them for the YubiKey back because I know as long as they surrendered their YubiKey, that they have surrendered access to all of the servers we've given them access to. And the nice thing about that from a client management perspective, I don't have to go back to a client and say, hey, we uh, we terminated a, a, an employee, and so I need you to remove all of their SSH keys. And now that you've gone through and done all of that, uh, we hired a new employee, and I need you to put all of these uh, SSH keys back in there. I don't have to air any of our dirty laundry. I just give them the current list of SSH keys that we have for employees. And of course, we have many more YubiKeys than we have actual employees. And so when we hire somebody, we just issue them uh, a YubiKey. We track that all internally. And it's a very clean infrastructure for, for managing access to servers. And again, the functionality that is built into these devices with the FIDO2 standard, the uh, obviously the PKCS11, I have a, another YubiKey that I was playing with just because it's fun, the GPG functionality and uh, learning how to utilize that. Uh, it's just a, it is definitely the direction that the industry is going to go. And so if you have an interest in security and you have an interest in hardware security, then you absolutely have to have one of these devices and, uh, Keep, keep an eye out for that tutorial coming out later this week. Again, asknoahshow.com to keep an eye on that. We have a project spotlight this week. This is a pretty cool project. It's called The Shell, and it is a very minimal desktop environment that is written in Qt. You can find it uh, on GitHub. We'll have a link for you in the show notes. Now, it's only been tested on Arch Linux in a custom package repository, simply add the, the following lines to the bottom of Etsy slash pacman.conf and it shows you how you can go ahead and get that project up and running and, uh, and how you can do that. I think that there is a real market for minimal desktop environments because there are so many machines that are inexpensive or that are repurposed and that people really need a simple go-to desktop environment because they want some sort of graphical interaction with the machine, but they don't want the a ton of overhead. I know that there are people out there that will tell me, hey, you know what? KDE is a very light desktop environment if you strip off some of the garbage on the top, or GNOME can be a very light desktop environment if you strip off some of the garbage off the top. But the truth is that both GNOME and KDE and even Mate to a lesser extent require a newer machine and require a, a beefier machine. I understand that you can buy a powerful enough machine for 120 bucks, $130 on eBay. But I have plenty of very older machines that are more than capable of running a Quassel server or more than capable of running a, a, a basic file server just to dump some data on. And so to have a very basic 
uh, window manager or desktop environment is a good thing. And I'm, I'm a big fan. I see the chat room is recommending i3 and awesome, uh, you know, and Xmonad. All of those are great choices. But there is something to be said about just having a mouse and being able to click on the thing that you want. That is a natural evolution of how we began to use our desktops and how we continue to use our computers. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Hey, guys, it's been great. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Ask Noah Show. You can find more by going to AskNoahShow.com. Head over to podcast.AskNoahShow.com. There we'll have all of the articles and referenced in this episode, as well as some of the articles that we just, you know, didn't have time to get to. You get the latest from following us on Twitter, at AskNoahShow. The Ask Noah Show continues next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. A huge thanks to Ben, our producer, Sarah, our call screener. This hour of the show may be over, but there's plenty of more content for you 24-7 at AskNoahShow.com. See you next week. <laughs>